Nations of goodwill from around the world stand united in our resolve to support Ukraine in its fight against Russia's imperial aggression. Now, there are growing concerns Russia could launch a nuclear attack. Just today, President Putin has made over nuclear threats against Europe. On Monday, February 20th, I was hearing the speech of Vladimir Putin, which was actually the speech of declaration of war. And he mentioned that every single anti-corruption reform we were doing, what Putin specifically mentioned that Ukraine is governed from outside through NGOs controlled by America, and uh, that these NGOs are fighting corruption. So basically, he was indirectly mentioning our organization and the work we did. Many people told me before the war started that uh, I'm very likely in the kill list of Putin. The threat that is posed by kleptocracy, uh, not just in Russia, but in many other countries. The very basis of a stable and just rule-based order is under attack by those who wish to tear it down or distort it for their own political advantage. Kleptocracy means rule by thieves. We have that in place. They can't do it without us. The rope with which we will hang ourselves. I'm an anti-corruption activist for the last 10 years. It doesn't make sense to fight corruption if you don't have a country. And now my key mission is to make sure that we have the country and to be able to have the country, we need to win this war. This is A Nation for Thieves. I'm Justin Shankaro, actor, armchair detective, and now self-described kleptocracy expert. We've been delving into the undercurrent of corruption at the highest levels with my new bestie and definitely by far the coolest person I know, Deborah LaPravat. I'm sitting here today in a studio in California. I'm like, how did I get here, right? Justin, I got here because of my friendship with you. 15 years ago, nobody used the word kleptocracy. It was international corruption. When I started working kleptocracy, I always had to explain kleptocracy <laughs> to people. A kleptocrat is the leader of one of these countries who puts their own worth or their well-being, their financial gain above the wellness of their populace. I didn't know what kleptocracy was. It's kind of a brand new topic. You started the kleptocracy department. How many kleptocratic satellite offices are there now within the FBI? There's Miami, there's New York, there's Los Angeles, Houston to deal with oil-related, Boston because it's a financial banking center. You know, one of the things I, I remind people all the time, kleptocracy isn't new. The term kleptocracy might be new. Here goes my English minor in literature, but Homer, no, not that Homer, dear. <laughs> uh, go back a few thou. Homer Simpson? In the Iliad, there's this, a line that says, it is a good thing to be king to see my riches enhanced and my power enlarged. And that's a paraphrase, but that was in Homer's Iliad. The same thing can be said today. If you're a king or a president and a kleptocrat, it is a good thing to be a king because your riches are enhanced and your power is enhanced. So it's not new. Luckily, in an electronic age, 
it's much harder to move money and there is always a paper trail. In the production of this podcast, we spoke with many of Debbie's close friends and colleagues. And while we were putting it together, the real life consequence of kleptocracy and speaking out against it came into full view. And I was like, what is this? I was going to get up in anger. And then the guy with the shotgun does put it to my head and say, just stay where you are. I was the only man in the house. So I've, I had my wife, my two daughters, and my sister-in-law. A young girl of 11, another one of uh, 16. I was just telling them, get anything that you want, do whatever you want to do with me, but leave those women and leave those girls. This is the first project I've ever worked on where, in the middle of production, you have people actively being attacked and fleeing persecution while you're speaking with them. My husband had to stay uh, in Ukraine because the martial law started. Not allowed to, to leave and he stayed. I have relocated to Poland. Daria Kalanuk is one of Debbie's friends and fellow kleptocracy fighting badass. She's the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center based in Kiev, Ukraine. We spoke with her days before war erupted on her doorstep. I look at the blackmail that Russia is doing, trying to keep Ukraine out of NATO. Well, if you don't plan to invade them, then you know what problem does Russia have with Ukraine being in NATO? Putin is certainly considered a kleptocrat. You know, why aren't people doing more against Putin? And the reality is international law kind of prohibits going after a sitting head of state. So the U.S. and others go after his inner circle. That clearly is not having the impact that uh, we want it to have. But if not for the bribes, the kickbacks, the uh, influence peddling that's occurring by Russia and now economic blackmail, prohibiting fuel from going to Germany, it's working. The rest of the world has to step up and make sure that doesn't happen. Every week, every day, we are waiting for invasion. Deborah first got in touch with Daria in the aftermath of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity in 2014. It was a violent protest, which resulted in the overthrowing of the Ukrainian government and the forced removal of then-President Viktor Yanukovych from power. After President Yanukovych fled Kiev, he fled with like 30 or 40 members of his inner circle uh, to go to Russia. While he was president, $40 billion left Ukraine. I consider it the systematic rape of a country. Oh, I remember an email from Debbie uh, when she was still FBI agent. It was exactly eight years ago. We were doing dossiers of uh, former President Yanukovych and his associates and mapping their assets kept at vast in Western jurisdictions. And I was very surprised to get a message from Deborah who told, okay, hi, I'm an FBI agent. You made these dossiers. Could you give more information? I got to know Deborah. And then we met on several occasions. Department of Justice was uh, working on trying to recover assets of Ukrainian former senior politicians. I reached out to Daria because she's the expert in Ukraine. She has been doing such phenomenal work in trying to aggressively address corruption. 
corruption in Ukraine has really crippled aspects of uh, Ukrainian society. I reached out to Daria because I felt that she was one of the best people on the ground in Kiev who had expertise and experience and knowledge and on the ground knowledge of where the FBI should be looking to try to recover assets and go after corrupt politicians out of Kiev. If Deborah wasn't an expert in Ukraine back when she took on the Lazarenko case, I can only imagine how many piles of notes she has on the country now. All of these things start with a phone call, right? I get a phone call and we're like, Deb, we need boots on the ground. And I'm like, you need my boots on the ground? I don't think you do. Next thing I know, I'm on a flight to Kiev. And I land and there's been protests in there, right? So there's there was still smoke rising from where there had been fires the day before in the town square called the Maidan. Protesters had like literally pulled the paving stones out of the road and made barricades. They burned some of the buildings. And I'm whisked off to the presidential palace, Mezhigoria. And it's all the things you see on TV, right? There's this huge mansion, there's a zoo, there's a Spanish galleon floating in the lake behind the building. Yanukovych, before he fled, he and his inner circle had dumped thousands of documents into the lake behind the Mezhigoria, had tried to burn other documents. A civil society came in with like divers and were bringing the documents up out of the lake. Some of the documents came to me and I was uh, working with other FBI and we were using the sauna inside of Mishagoria to dry out some of these documents and they were being laid out all over inside of a property on the grounds trying to dry them out. They were receipts for purchase of items there was inventory his car museum on the property. All of these things should be sold and so that the money could be returned into state coffers and used for the people of Ukraine. It was such a moment when the average Ukrainian citizen was allowed to walk through this mansion, which was always a separation between us and them the political elites of Ukraine and the and the people of Ukraine, to see the egregiousness of the lifestyle that was being paid for out of corruption. As a student, Daria left Ukraine to complete a master's in financial law in the U.S. so that she could return to her home country and bring the fight to the corrupt officials within it. So I would turn back to Ukraine with some ideas how to use these tools, how to make sure that we are making problems for Ukrainian corrupt officials on the West, and how to make sure that these international laws, they work, that they are not just on paper, but they are being implemented by the international financial institutions. At that moment, I understood that the key root of all other problems is corruption. There was something ominous about the way Daria spoke when we first talked. Every day we are waiting for invasion. We have the calendar already of invasions. We're joking about that because there is no other way to to survive uh, in the circumstances where every second day top leaders of international countries are saying that Invasion is going to be at 3 a.m. on February 16. So we are uh, advising all our citizens to depart Ukraine and we are evacuating our embassies from Ukraine. What should I do if there will be war? And you kind of live in this surreal situation. 
Here is my radio, for example. I'm showing it to you. We bought these radios uh, in case there will be invasion, in case there will be cuts of communications, cuts of internet, cuts of phones. You have to have a radio to understand what's going on. So it's part of the security protocol which, which we are now developing. A challenging place to live now. <laughs> but I think that in Ukraine, we've got used to tough surroundings. It's not a unique situation for us. If there will be invasion, okay, let it be the invasion. I'm prepared for that, at least mentally. And at least my team knows what to do in that case. And at least there will be more motivation for us to keep working, but not only on Ukrainian corruption, but also on international corruption. It is history repeating itself. I think we had kind of hoped that after World War I and World War II, maybe the world was changing. That other countries aren't going to invade other countries. That there is some sovereignty and that groups like NATO and others protect the smaller countries from invasion. My question is back to why. Why does Russia want to invade Ukraine? Why isn't it enough for President Putin to just make his country a wonderful place for Russians to live and really think not about globalization, not about invasion, but just doing the right thing for their own people? If you look at Ukraine, what you find is that so many of the uh, former presidents have been loyal not to the people of Ukraine, but to Russia and money. And Yanukovych to this day is still living with his entourage in Russia. It's very interesting to watch Russia and China work as partners kind of against the rest of the world. They block a lot of actions at the United Nations. It is a very bad representation of history repeating itself. Just days after we first spoke with Daria, Russia advanced troops into Ukraine. She was forced to flee and is currently holed up in Poland. We were able to catch up with her in the aftermath of war. I left home before Russia invaded. I was hearing the speech of Vladimir Putin, which was actually the speech of declaration of war. He was indirectly mentioning our organization and the work we did. I did my best to convince people from our team who were at that time still in Kyiv to leave Kyiv. Many of them left, but those who stayed, they were preparing for invasion. The night before the invasion, I was campaigning, asking to block Putin wallets to seize assets of uh, Putin oligarchs all across the world. And I remember I did a recording for my friends in Great Britain, where I was demanding a seizure of property of Russian oligarchs. Thank you, Prime Minister. Daria Kaliniuk, um, I had anti-corruption action center from Ukraine. I passed the border a couple of days ago. You're talking about more sanctions, Prime Minister, but Roman Abramovich is not sanctioned. He's in London. His children are not in the bombardments. His children are there in London. Putin's children are in Netherlands, in Germany, in mansions. Where are all these mansions seized? 
I don't see that. This is what is happening, Prime Minister. They put my recording on the screen and broadcasted it on a Russian embassy in London. Many people told me before the war started that uh, I'm very likely in the kill list of Putin and that I have to go abroad. The morning of February 24, invasion started. Ivano-Frankivsk, the place, the city where my kids stayed, was also hit by Russian bombs. The airport, the, the hit airport. I have realized that war have started. I immediately went to my kids with my husband to figure out what to do next. My friend in Poland sent me a car in case I will need to evacuate with my kids. And she told me, listen, I can't send you a car. I can help. That was a hard drive, uh, already huge fuse. We managed it. We evacuated also kids of our friends. My husband had to stay in Ukraine because the martial law started. Not allowed to, to leave and he stayed. I have relocated to Poland. I felt safe and emotionally ready to do real work, to do interviews, to do proper communication. Our first days after war, we were with our Polish friends buying all helmets and vests we could in Poland, sending them to Ukraine and then arranging logistics for sending them to Kiev. I wanted to make sure that our people who remained in Kiev, they are protected, that they have at least basic protection, as Kiev was heavily bombed. I tried to convince all my people to leave Kiev, but they refused. Many joined territorial defense. We managed to send from Kiev all of our families with kids. That was the most important. I think that for kids, it's very bad to witness uh, bombs raining from the sky. We have founded the International Center of Ukrainian Victory in Warsaw. We have invited a few more women leaders from Ukraine. Olga Ivazovska, the head of Upora organization. We have synchronized, synergized efforts. And since then, we are advocating internationally for everything Ukraine needs to win the war as soon as possible with preserving as much lives as we can. So I had a chance to ask a question to Boris Johnson. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? To observe, instead of uh, planes, are protecting NATO from the missiles and bombs? What's the alternative for the no-fly zone? We have planes here. We have air defense system in Poland, in Romania. NATO has this air defense. At least this air defense could shield the Western Ukraine so that these children with women could come to the border. At that time, it was clear NATO is not ready to impose no-fly zone over Ukraine. I tried to understand what is the alternative? Is the alternative actually for Ukrainian people to keep dying from Russian bombs and for Ukrainian cities to be destroyed by Russian missiles? It was kind of clear for me that the West is not thinking about the alternative. I was very emotional, very disappointed. Since then, 
we had started asking international foreign leaders, you mentioned that it will be never again, that the war in Europe will be never again. People are dying in the middle of Europe because of the Russian aggression and because of Russian military attacking entire Ukrainian territory. We need help. The Ukrainian people were ready to fight, but we were very lack of weapons. And since then, we were heavily pushing leaders of uh, Western countries, especially the U.S., especially the U.K., to start providing real heavy NATO weapons to Ukraine. There is certain progress with that, but we are still are not receiving weapons to protect our sky from Russian bombs. Not enough weapons to unblock our ports and cities and to rescue our heroes and our civilians. I'm an anti-corruption activist for the last 10 years, but it doesn't make sense to fight corruption if you don't have a country. And now my key mission is to make sure that we have the country and to be able to have the country, we need to win this war. We need to win it very soon. We can't allow Ukraine to be exhausted in a long year's war. It's very good that finally Western governments have started to seize gas and other luxurious assets of Russian oligarchs. But it's a bit too late, honestly. It was important to do before war to prevent war. But now with Russian seized yachts, we can't stop this war. It's important to do to impose higher course on Russian elite for their empowerment of Vladimir Putin for the last 20 years. However, in a short-term perspective, it will not protect Ukrainian people from Russian soldiers and Russian bombs. In a long-term perspective, uh, once all legal procedures will be done, I believe that the process of seizure, process of confiscation of this yacht and other luxurious assets have to be used to repay Ukrainian people for our sufferings and to use these funds for reconstructing our cities and towns and infrastructure. I'm also sending to Congress a comprehensive package that will enhance our underlying effort. The Russian oligarchs, we're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains. I asked Debbie later why Daria thought taking all the rich dudes' yachts wouldn't be helpful to Ukraine in the short term. The United States and other countries have seized a number of Russian oligarchs' yachts. Seizing it is one thing. Forfeiting usually means that you have to trace it back to criminal conduct. If it is the proceeds of a crime, then there is a victim of that crime. Legally, how do you say, okay, I'm not giving the money back to that victim of the crime, but I'd like to give the money to Ukraine? You know, there is a victim of a crime. Maybe that victim is the government of Russia, in which case there might be a way to deem that it's, you know, was funding the war. And in that case, the money could go back. When you're taking someone's 
property away. There are property laws, ownership laws. And to say that you're not a sympathetic victim, so I want to give your money to someone who's more deserving legally is a difficult thing to do. Hey, like when I'm talking to other people, I'm like, yeah, I don't like you. So I want to take your boat and give it to him. That doesn't work. I believe we have to find a legal mechanism. If it doesn't exist yet, we have to develop and design this legal mechanism to be able to confiscate also these assets, which belong to Russian National Bank and which belong to Russian people. I also believe, and we are now working with a few initiatives, to find a legal way how to get the legal decision that Russia is committing the act of aggression. Act of aggression is a crime. It's international crime, but international institutions which have to go through legal procedures and admit that there is a legal act of aggression, they are not able to deliver this because the UN is being blocked by Russia, which is member of the Security Council. What Russia is doing now, it's breaking the international law and international system which was developed after the World War II. It means also that this system is not able to cope with current challenges. It means that some alternative mechanisms and tools have to be invented and created. There could be different legal procedures, but they can't last for 20 years. We have to find something that can be implemented quicker. What we are saying to our partners, especially the United States, listen, American people are providing quite expensive help for Ukraine. And these are billions of dollars. We understand that these are big amounts, but we believe that first, it's cheaper for American people to stop Putin in Ukraine. And second, American people will and should have right to return this spend on providing weapons to Ukraine and other support for Ukraine from money which will be confiscated from a Russian state. So this is the big picture uh, view from our perspective. As you see, we are now thinking much broader than just Russian oligarchs. I had the um, opportunity to brief the U.S. government uh, several times over the last couple of weeks. There are several acts that are being proposed by Congress, the Ukrainian Repatriation Act and several others, where they are trying to come up with legal mechanisms to forfeit the items that have already been seized internationally and figure out a legal way to give that money to help rebuild and um, recover in Ukraine. One of the things that I have proposed to the U.S. government is that at least $45 billion has left Ukraine between, say, 2010 and 2018. If any of that money can be recovered under Yanukovych and under Poroshenko, that that is Ukraine's money. That money hopefully could more quickly be repatriated back to Ukraine. But as you know all too well, these are often long processes. If you haven't got an idea yet of just how long these processes take, 
every case we've discussed on this podcast took up much of Debbie's 25-year career, and most of them are still ongoing. Debbie has worked her whole life trying to stop this kind of corruption that leads to war. This takes a long time, these legal procedures. What is now being committed is the act of aggression, is terrorism, and is genocide against Ukrainian people. These all three terms are legal terms, and we need to design legal institutions or international legal formulas, how to make these legal terms to have legal meaning, to have legal decision that Russia committed act of aggression against Ukraine, to have political and then legal decision that Russia is the state sponsor of terrorism, when 9-11 happened in the U.S., the international anti-money laundering standards were reinforced. And these are legal standards. Now, when Joe Biden is saying Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism, we are forgetting that Russia is a member of this organization, Financial Action Task Force organization, which is setting up the rules international rules and standards, how to block financing of terrorism. I think it's kind of crazy. I think that the next step is to kick out Russia from this intergovernmental institution and to blacklist Russia. I'm also very much annoyed when people, especially in Europe, are saying, but you know, it's just Putin's war. It's not just Putin's war against Ukraine. It's not Putin who is raping Ukrainian children. It's not Putin who destroyed entire city of Mariupol where more than 20,000 people were died. It's not just Putin who, who simply kidnaps Ukrainian people and children from the occupied territories and uh, tortures them and then sends them to Siberia as Russia did eight years ago. So these are actually average Russian people, soldiers, commanders, and Russian citizens supported and paid for it. They're taxpayers. I think that changes a bit that way how international community has to approach Russia. We have to think about bigger picture, the need to change how international law works. Because now international law works in a way that it is not preventing genocide in the middle of Europe. We started this series discussing individuals who are targeted for trying to expose corruption. Now, we're watching an entire country be targeted. Putin and his regime, corruption is the way how to stay in power. When we were progressing in fighting corruption in Ukraine and cleaning up our institutions and showing that actually it's possible to do the judicial reform. It's possible to have clean judges. It's possible to have electoral democracy and not bribe voters. We were showing that near Russia, there is a country which Russia thinks is part of the sphere of influence, which is completely different from what is Russia. And I think that was the direct threat to the regime of Russian autocracy. 
the opposite to stealing, the opposite of bribing, the opposite of abusing power, the opposite of uh, spreading propaganda and zombie citizens. That was Ukraine, which we were building. For Putin, it was clear that if we're getting more and more successful in our anti-corruption fight, something can change also in Russia, and he, he could lose his power and his regime will break up. That was one of the reasons which caused the war. But there is one more reason. It's not just about corruption causing wars. It's about corruption using, being used as an instrument to spread hate speech, to spread propaganda with hate speech, to arm the army, which then kills civilians, tens of thousands. This is what is happening. I think that, you know, the war which is now in Ukraine is being watched by a lot of autocratic regimes which are using corruption as a tool and they are thinking, what will be the end game of this war? And if Ukraine will lose, if Russia will manage to destroy our country, then it will be the green light for other authoritarian regimes to follow this path. Because if there is Russia, which can forget about all international laws, break them, and simply destroy another country and kill thousands of people, then other countries can do that as well in order to sustain in power. What makes anyone think Putin will stop or Russia will stop with Ukraine? Putin will not stop with Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is basically the battlefield of the bigger hybrid war between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and oppression. What world we will have tomorrow will depend on the outcome of this war. Debbie has spent her entire career helping to fight corruption in Ukraine. Her first kleptocracy case was old Lazarenko. Remember him? You know, the fat guy who lives in California. Along with Daria, they've cleaned up Ukraine's act, something which is now a direct threat to Russia. And all the while, there's still tens of billions of dollars that have been stolen out of Ukraine over the years. Money which could have been used right now to help the country save itself. You're helping your country in ways that I think maybe a decade ago you couldn't have imagined the role you would have played. It's people like yourself who are very vocal, who aren't afraid of calling out individuals and saying, look, this is what our country needs. I hope you know that there are many people around the world who are trying to help Ukraine. In my background with asset recovery and, and forfeiture or going after assets, we know it's only one small aspect, but we're trying to figure it out and make it happen. I'm really touched by many people all around the world, people in America especially, uh, supporting Ukraine. We show that there is honor and there is dignity and there are certain values for which you can fight till death. These values, they correspond a lot to the values of America, real values on which the United States were built as a true democracy. 
we in Ukraine feel very much connected to the people of the United States. In terms of people in Europe, there are different feelings. We have so much support in Poland, in Lithuania, in Estonia, Latvia, basically all Eastern Europe except Hungary, on the level of politicians and just average citizens, they care, they support, they say to us, listen guys, you're fighting our war. We want to help and we will help. Tell us what help is needed. But I can't understand what is happening in the Western Europe, especially in Germany, in France. We are coming, we're talking to politicians and politicians are saying, well, Ukraine is a a real oppression interest. So why you guys don't simply surrender and prevent all this death? So I see that there is a lot of misunderstanding of Ukraine and Russia in Western Europe. And one of the reasons, I think, is also because of corruption. Corruption has two forms. One of them is, is visible, is clear, and, you know, um, I feel now offended when many people are saying Ukraine is the most corrupt country in Europe, which is actually not true. We did a lot to fight corruption during the last 10 years. But there is another form of corruption, which is more disguised. This corruption enabled propaganda of Russia on the West, and enabled Putin's regime. The army of Western lawyers, PR firms, lobbies, politicians, former politicians who were bought by very large money by Russians to simply promote the interests of Russia abroad, especially in the West, especially in the Western Europe, especially in Germany and France. People in these countries have to understand that it's like radiation, that this level of corruption and enabling the flow of dirty money is destroying democracy at the West from inside. It's changing the reality there. It's changing the way how people think and the way how people behave. It's changing the values and undermining values. And Europe now has to recall why and for what reason the United Europe was built. And those reasons were values. And I don't feel that people in some parts of Western Europe understand that. Now is the time to clean up the financial system and the legal system at the West. Now is the time to finally implement a lot of good laws which were created to prevent the flow of dirty money. It's finally time to adopt laws to target enablers, those lawyers and PR firms and lobbyists, which for money are helping to craft new reality. It's time now to forbid foreign politicians to participate in a very corrupt deals. The West kept doing business with Russia and reinforcing Russia and paying billions and billions of dollars. And all these billions and billions of dollars of oil and gas paid to Russia are now used to kill Ukrainian people, to destroy Ukrainian cities, to rape Ukrainian children. This is the cost of strategic geopolitical corruption.
to hear that Daria could possibly be on the Putin or Russian kill list is a very sad commentary, but it also means you're shaking the right tree. If no one's interested in you, then you're probably not going after those people that are decision makers, people who are running countries, people who are invading other countries. I worry for her safety, but I'm not surprised because the Anti-Corruption Action Center that Daria started 10 years ago has been doing phenomenal work. It just means that she's being very successful at her work. And I think that everybody who fights corruption realizes the, the threat of intimidation and bodily harm goes with the job. It's a good recognition of my work. I just have to be a little bit more careful and think more about security. And I'm doing that. There are so many Ukrainians who stood up after the war started against Putin that I think that now there are millions of Ukrainians who could qualify for the kill list. So I'm not alone there. Given I'm now an expert in kleptocracy, I wonder why I hadn't been called to consult with the government on Ukraine. Turns out they'd already been talking with Deborah. I've been very popular in the last couple of weeks because I worked Ukrainian asset recovery. So everybody's pinging me like, can you brief people? Who has information on Russian oligarchs' assets? What is the legal feasibility of repatriating assets? I've reminded everyone that there are hurdles that will have to be crossed, legal rulings that will have to be determined on how to legally take assets away from Russian oligarchs and try to use that money to benefit the victims, not only the victims of war, the victims of sexual violence, because as Daria said, not only children, but many women have been raped by Russian soldiers as well as rebuilding an entire country where entire towns have been decimated off the face of the earth. A lot of countries stepped up to the plate and have seized assets. Now we have to figure out a way to forfeit them and use that money for a great deal of good in Ukraine. After speaking with Daria, I felt overwhelmed by what was going on in the world. Maybe I should have never done this podcast. Ignorance is bliss. I didn't know anything about kleptocracy. And so I was ignorant about it. I didn't know, it didn't really affect me. I didn't have an understanding of it. And now I have a deep understanding of kleptocracy and it scares me. It really scares me because these corrupt officials have stolen billions of dollars. They're murderers, they're terrorists. Many of them are living comfortably with their families or new families living in mansions, going to shop for groceries. They're driving their fancy cars. I'm thankful that there are people like you, Debbie, and other FBI agents that are chasing these kleptocrats that are tracking the money because it gives me hope. We've got to continue this fight. We've got to do what we can. I've shut out a lot of news. I really have. I've been so distraught by the fake news, the, the negativity, that I cannot stand it. I don't want to watch it. I don't even want to read it. Not only affects me, but it affects a lot of my friends. And I try to live 
frankly, in a world of positivity, see how I can do great things in my life. And the news is so negative that I have to shut it out. But of course, I'm becoming ignorant to what's happening around the world. It's very important to learn about what's happening, especially with kleptocracy and how I can make a difference. And Justin, you're not alone. I mean, I talk to people every day who will say, I don't watch the news at all anymore because it's just so negative. You don't have someone like the good old days of Walter Cronkite who just reported the news. You have to watch three or four different news channels. Fox News might present this, but CNN, NBC, and then present this. But you have no way of really vetting what's real because months later, you see that a news story that was put out by a so-called reputable news agency is debunked two months later, three months later. Wall Street Journal, Washington Post are having to do redactions on previous reporting. You're not alone in the fact that a lot of people have just switched off the news because A, they can no longer believe it as factual and B, because it's nothing positive. The news in the United States right now is all around the uptake in violence and why is there this uptake? That's the news that's you know kind of dominating the headlines at the moment. But you go somewhere else in the world and you're like, wow, there was an earthquake and so-and-so? There's other news and no one's covering it. And I think we'd all be a lot better off where I don't want us to not know that there's a rise in crime in certain cities in the United States, but I wanna know what's going on in the rest of the world. Some good news and some bad news. I flip back and forth all day between several news broadcasts so that I try to get more than one view. There are so many people that I talk to who've never been out of the continental United States. I think that has one of the impacts on why the U.S. news is so U.S.-centric. I watch the BBC, I watch Al Jazeera, I watch Fox News, I watch uh, CNN. I want to know what's going on in the rest of the world. People like Debbie, Daria, Lon Ray, David Montero, Jonathan Benton, and hundreds of other anti-corruption experts and advocates across the world are inspiring. But we can't all be like them. Was there something I could do that any of us could do to help fight against corruption and kleptocracy in our own lives? There is so much more than anybody realizes. Everybody has a piece of the puzzle and sometimes they're unaware that the information that they have is so valuable. Whenever I found out that one of my targets, a, a politically exposed person, a Russian oligarch, or somebody had bought a $25 million mansion in California, the first thing I thought was, Who's doing their lawn work? Who's their pool guy? Who's paying the electricity on this property? Is this a secure neighborhood? And is there a security guard in the neighborhood? And does he know who lives there? Each one of those people knows maybe who hired them. They talk, they talk to the servants in the house and they know who lives there, who delivers groceries. I mean, it, who services their vehicle? All of those people know something. Right now, the United States and the rest of the world is focusing on seizing some of the assets that belong to Russian oligarchs, and several high-end yachts have been seized. But those yachts travel, right? They show up in a resort town where somebody looks out into the water and says, well, who does that huge yacht belong to? And somebody goes, oh yeah, that's some Russian guy involved in oil. 
it's got to get gas, it's got to get food, and there's a crew on board. And those crew, you know, go into town. Every one of those people has a tidbit of information that if they come across it, they could certainly share. And they may never know that the information they shared was so valuable. But someone like myself who lives off that information is very happy to get it. Some of my best friends are trash pickup guys. And they could easily go to one of the FBI websites and report that they have information related to a foreign corrupt official, or they could share it with the local police department or to banks. All of these people will write it down and get it into these different databases that the FBI and, and international law enforcement have access to. And that's just not in the United States, that's everywhere. There are anti-corruption outfits, uh, NGOs around the world that have websites. The really great thing about that is it's anonymous. If it's just a tip, there's no reason for us to get back in touch with you. You don't need to provide your name, your information. It's just a tip. Wherever you're listening to this, if you know information, please feel free to go online and do an anonymous tip to the FBI. The UK has the National Crime Agency as well as the Proceeds of Crime Unit in Scotland Yard. I would just recommend anyone who has information related to Russian oligarchs and people who might be profiting from the war going on in Ukraine. For every other citizen, what I would strongly suggest is that if you're in a position to give, there are thousands of refugees right now who need your assistance. There are thousands of animals who have either fled with their owners or have been left behind. One of the best ways you can help Ukraine right now is to be generous and give when you can, because right now people need a place to eat, a place to sleep, and food. Debbie has spent her whole life exposing kleptocracy around the world. She retired from the FBI a few years ago, and I thought she might spend her time with her feet up tending to her 57-acre ranch. Turns out I was wrong. A lot of people don't realize is that mandatory retirement age for FBI agents is 57. I was 55 at the time, and I had my six years with the Department of Defense, 20 years with the FBI, and I thought, well, where am I going to go next? And I was provided the opportunity to work uh, for a group called The Century. The Century, it was co-founded by actor George Clooney and his business partner, John Pendergast. The Century is a group that investigates greed, that fuels war crimes and atrocities. It's a group of investigators and policymakers who conduct investigations, and then we share that information, the evidence we collect with anyone who could do something with it, whether it's the United States government or other foreign governments. There are kleptocracies that are considered violent kleptocracies because they not only rob their countries blind, but they use their military, their national security services against their own citizens. So for the last six years, I have been investigating and following the money related to a violent kleptocracy in South Sudan. The century focuses on Central Africa, as well as Zimbabwe and a few other countries. It's just really meaningful investigative work. Yeah, she's still flying around the globe trying to take these monsters down. 
I no longer have the security of the FBI behind me. If I would fly into an African country as part of the FBI, you know, I checked in with the FBI office. I checked in with the U.S. Embassy. They told me what hotels to stay at. We follow security protocols. Now, when I travel into Africa, the Sentry has gone to great lengths to make sure that we are secure. But the reality is there's two of us in the country. Because of my background, I still check in. I check in with the U.S. and the U.K. embassy, and I'm not a U.K. citizen. I just want you to know I'm here. <laughs> I take steps, but there are parts of the world now that I would no longer travel to because I recognize that it would not be safe for me to travel there. I doubt seriously I'd be welcome in Juba, South Sudan. I mean, places where I've testified against uh, world leaders or I've seized their assets. Is there any rest for you at all, Debbie? Not in the foreseeable future, right? I, I, I used to say uh, crime is running amok, and I called it job security, um, because there is no end to insight for corrupt leaders around the world who put themselves and their own enrichment over the people that they are supposed to govern. So, you know, uh, I just got back from Tunisia, and I was providing training there on how to trace money internationally and how to recover assets. How do we get our money back? Who are you training in Tunisia? You know, for security reasons, I don't share who I provide training to. I just got back from Prague, too. Uh, there was a global summit on corruption. And so I'm trying to tell people, it's like, the United States and other countries are there to help you. And it's not just the U.S. It's the U.S., the U.K., Germany, Canada, uh, the EU. There's a lot of countries that will help if people ask for help. So what's next on your calendar, Debbie? The world's largest anti-corruption conference will be in D.C., Washington, D.C., and like more than a thousand anti-corruption activists, NGOs, investigators, law enforcement, uh, civil society, investigative journalists, they'll all be pouring into DC. And it's a great opportunity to network, find out uh, who, you know, who can you reach out to for help? Where is, you know, what are other crimes that you're, I mean, I learn about crimes I've never even heard of before. And I've been doing this for 26 years. What's your role in this conference? Well, I, right now, I believe I'm on two or three of the panel discussions for the conference. So, you know, I, I proposed several um, topics like, how do we get our money back? <laughs> how do you ask for international cooperation? So, I mean, that's my message. It's like there are people out there who want to help you recover your stolen assets and investigate corrupt leaders. And this is a great opportunity to people, for people to find out who's out there and willing to help them. Debbie has done so much to help fight against corruption and kleptocracy in her career and life. I wanted to know what she thought about the continuing effort to hold these people accountable. There are several countries that have taken great strides to fight corruption. That being said, though, there are still countries like Russia, like South Sudan, like Equatorial Guinea, and the list goes on. Somalia, Syria where uh, everyday corruption is a part of life for those people and the fight continues. Trillions of dollars are moved around the world every year that are derived from corruption. There have been excellent laws and investigative steps taken to try to curb that, yet it still continues. People find a way to move illicit money. 
there is an effort around the world to really address corruption and grand corruption. There's a lot of good going on, but there are still corrupt regimes around the world. And so the efforts just have to continue. Thankfully, the efforts are continuing. Despite being on Vladimir Putin's kill list, Daria continues to go back to the Ukraine to fight for the safety of her people and her country. When we first spoke to Lonre, he just left court fighting fake charges designed to stop him bringing justice to corrupt officials in Nigeria. After finishing production on this podcast, we've just been notified that all charges against Lonre have been dropped. Lonre's here in the U.S. I spoke to him this morning. He and I are working on one of the investigations that he's investigating in Nigeria. Was he able to bring his family here or are they still back in Nigeria? They're here in the United States, safe and sound. So we're really happy. But Daria, Lonre, and Debbie all still face the very real danger in their everyday lives that comes from holding a candle to the underhanded dealings of evil people. And as for me, well, I'm still an actor, but I guess next time I'm at a Hollywood party, I'm gonna look a little bit harder at all the people around me. And maybe you can too. Oh, and I'm definitely making friends with my trash guy. A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah LaPravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Audio courtesy of Stanford Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law, and Seven Network. All rights reserved. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. For further information on anonymous tip lines, the organizations fighting kleptocracy around the world and what you can do to help, check out the show notes. If you like what you're listening to, we'd love to hear from you with any comments or feedback. And it would really mean a ton if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps get the information to as many people as possible. For more information, go to lionsgatesound.com.